Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Lloyd, and I'm the chairman of the Young Republicans of Oregon. And I'd like to welcome you guys for an interview. Um, for today's meeting, we're, we're going to be talking with Erica Hetfield. Erica is a senior public affairs specialist for Brass Tax Public Affairs, a conservative public or a conservative public affairs group in Oregon. We'll first ask Erica to come uh, for some prepared questions that we came up with, and then we'll have audience Q&A. So if you have any questions, please post them in the Zoom chat. Um, so I want to pass the time over to Kurt. Yeah, well, um, I met Erica through happenstance, and uh, um, I mean, mostly our shared uh, our shared sort of disdain for sort of what's happening in Portland. And uh, so uh, Erica comes to us with a lot of uh, a lot of knowledge in the um, the public affairs side of Oregon and um, uh, business issues, specifically uh, business advocacy. And um, so I've geared my questions sort of towards um, Oregon at large um, and. I've just, we're hoping to sort of have a, a conversation and a dialogue um, rather than like a, you know, back and forth. So um, Stephen or, or Lauren, if you guys want to expand, uh, feel free. Um, so I guess my first question is, um, and also um, I know you proudly state that you're a fourth generation Oregonian, um, Erica. So what are, uh, what are things that Oregonians care about? And, and I, you know, specifically right-leaning um, Oregonians, and what are some winning issues and arguments uh, in the state? So, thanks, Kurt. Um, my my background, just quickly, in addition to being a, a fourth-generation Oregonian, um, I went to U of O. I graduated from Sunset High School, and right out of college, I became a lobbyist. Um, so, I lobbied for about 10 years for uh, different business groups, and then I've headed up to statewide business advocacy groups. And my claim to fame is being the last person to organize a defeat at the ballot for the government employee unions, which was in 2016. And we had a $50 million shootout and uh, the business community uh, defeated the government employee unions at the ballot for the first time in decades. So I was happy to lead that. And um, with that background, I look through uh, politics in a, um, a lens that includes both art and science. And so Anything that I can relay today um, is is half hunch and half science, uh, as you can imagine, in anybody else's job as well. So, um, what what I know specifically from most recent public survey research, and I don't have a poll in front of me today, um, is that Oregonians' number one concern for state government is the homelessness and poverty, and that's from a, an early March poll conducted statewide by DHM research. And uh, I live in the People's Republic of Southeast Portland across from Reed College. And uh, I get to see that firsthand every day. So um, it's, uh, I'm sure many of you live in different parts of the state and um, experience and see that kind of activity as well. So that came as no surprise for me. Um, Obviously, jobs in the economy, depending on where we're at in a cycle, kind of bounces around uh, in priorities with education, um, transportation. Um, COVID-19 concerns have kind of uh, bumped along at number two or number three concerns. But I think um, on more of the, the art side of the business, the more people I talk to across the state, 
people's eyes have been opened during COVID about the tremendous amount of control government has over our everyday lives. In every facet, what we can wear, where you can work and when you can work, how much you get paid for that work, um, whether your kids can go to school, who they can go to school with, what they're hearing from their teachers. Um, and I think for, for conservatives and for, for folks who are unhappy with the direction of the state, that's really positive news that people had a front row seat to just how tyrannical our, our government can be if we have the wrong people in power. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's um, incredible. I've, um, I, I've sort of had an epiphany the last few weeks of, um, you know, looking at what's happening in Portland. And I mean, notoriously having grown up in the area, the schools are not great. Um, and now the public safety is not good. They've defunded police. The, the sanitation is not good. Um, and you look around and you're like, well, what is government doing? And I know like as a conservative, like it's not nice to say like, oh, we need the government to be doing more. But do you think it's gotten to the point where people are like, okay, we need to do an about face and turn the other way? Or is it like, mm, we'll vote for the Dem who's not uh, as, uh, you know, who's not Ted Wheeler, I guess? I think people are hungry for change. Um, the real question for any of us and any political type who tells you they know what's gonna happen in 2022 is a liar. So I can't tell you, but um, people are gonna to have to make a choice. And it's between voting for people who have the courage to do the hard things to turn this city and the state around or sticking with what they know. For the last 40 years, we've had Democrat governors um, and expecting the same results. And I think um, candidates running for any of these positions have to make clear on the Republican or conservative side that um, are you more afraid of voting for someone with, a, with an R next to their name or are you more afraid of watching the state continue on this decline for the next 10 years and what that would look like, what that would mean for their family? Right, and that's, oh, uh, that's, that's a, a question that comes up often in Republican circles and in liberal states is do you, um, you know, who do you, who do you shoot for to run against whoever in 2022? Do you elect, uh, you know, a staunch conservative or do you elect a moderate Republican or do you promote a moderate Republican who has the possibility of getting elected? Um, do you have any thoughts on, on that as a party? Again, we can't know what's gonna happen in 2022, but I can tell you that history tells us that when we try to out-Democrat the Democrats on any of their issues, we lose. And the last statewide win we had was with Dennis Richardson in 2016 for Secretary of State. And Dennis Richardson was a rock solid conservative. Um, he had the good fortune of running against a very unpopular um, labor commissioner, Brad Avakian, um, so he had a kind of a perfect storm along with the Trump bump in 2016. But um, I think with Newt Bueller, although he was, um, you know, he served our state a lot and was a conservative, although has left the party, um, his campaign showed us that we can't apologize for who we are as Republicans or conservatives. People smell that, it smells weak. We have to make sure we have people 
who are moving into elected office who have the courage to do hard things. Because I think in my mind, if I disagree with someone, I at least want them to be honest and start making bold decisions. Um, and I think people will respond to that, um, even if they disagree with them. Yeah. And another question, um, we, we've been talking about 2022, for those who don't know, Kate Brown is going to be term limited and there will be sort of a tete-a-tete, um, you know, a Democrat versus Republican, um, you know, traditionally, obviously that's what happens. Um, so 2022 is an off cycle year. So it's outside of the presidential election. Um, I was looking at the numbers, uh, less than half of the population. I think this includes children as well, but 1.8 million people voted in 2018. Um, and if you look at the numbers back and forth between on and off cycles, the off cycle is dramatically lower. So are there, are there ways to encourage people um, or use the, use the dysfunction that's happened with the homeless and the, the lockdowns and use those um, in campaigning for 2022 and saying, look, we can't go back to what's been happening. There's a couple different mechanics there for your question in 2018. Um, primarily what we observed is that um, Newt Bueller wasn't able to hold on to the base. Although he did get a vast majority of non-affiliated voters and he was picking those people up. But what the Democrats did is what they do best, which is to use scare tactics to turn out their voters and use ballot harvesting to turn out their voters. And that just pure Democrat acceleration was able to um, get them the result they did with Newt losing, I think by about seven, six or seven points. Um, because we are midterm turnout will probably be, you know, in the 70 to 75% range. Um, uh, you know, obviously Republicans of the major parties are the smallest voting block. But I think what we see is that the politicos are recognizing that get out the vote cannot be an episodic thing. Get out the vote right now is operated by a campaign that closes up its tent and moves along after the campaign. And our opponents on the liberal side communicate and engage their voters all year long and form a relationship. So when those groups, those liberal groups ask those people to vote, they're gonna go out and do it. Whereas Republicans just have this periodic episodic relationship. And so I think there's recognition early that get out the vote is more than just shaming people into turning in their ballot. Get out the vote has to be more about relationships this time and talking with people about issues they care about. And that all takes money. Um, I'm hoping that, that folks will, will make an early investment in those kinds of activities. To compete, we have to compete. Yeah, and I, I think you touched on it well that we are kind of in a. I mean, frankly, we're in a good fortune with what's in our happenstance with again the homeless homelessness up. You know, Eugene, Salem, Portland, and and Kate Brown locking. You know, doing the lockdowns. I I feel like it's it's a perfect storm of being able to roll into 2022 and say look, we can't go back. And, and again, I, I completely agree with you. I've told these guys as uh, you know, I've been beating a dead horse, but it, it's a slow burn and it starts now. Um, it's not, we can't let, um, you know, the COVID openings, uh, the state opening up, we can't let that pacify us 
uh, and lull us to sleep. And then again, you know, I've, I've said we can't let it be a September through November campaign. Uh, it has to start now. So, so what are some ways that, you know, we don't exactly have, I mean, we have a few, but um, we don't have, you know, ad campaigns for, for specific candidates. Uh, what can, you know, folks like us be doing now to sort of use that momentum uh, starting today? I think what um, I've been seeing in the grassroots that's been successful has been, especially um, around the suburban ring around Portland, um, groups of parents popping up, being absolutely livid about what's going on with their schools and their school boards. Um, so any way that um, no matter what issue you're interested in or what is kind of fanned your, your flames about the last year is um, try to organize people to make them aware of the problems. Um, uh, you know, for me, that probably, I mean, for younger Republicans, obviously that's a lot of social and digital media work. Um, but just, you know, gathering with people together who are conservatives and just saying, it's okay to talk about the issues we talk about and then bring in more and more people. Um, if your issue is elections integrity, if your issue is um, critical race theory, you can bring people um, around a table just, you know, for a happy hour, just to talk about the issue and see if, you know, see if there's anything that you guys want to get active in. Yeah. Yeah. That's a wonderful question. You brought up something that I've actually, um, I jotted down was, you know, we talked about the, the lower turnout in the off cycle years, but how do we convince people, uh, how do we convince people to vote when, you know, a lot of people that we run into, um, that frankly, they say like, why should I vote if they're just going to steal the election like 2020? Um, and whether I believe that or not, it, it's a real concern they have. So it's something we, you know, need to address and, and you know, talk to talk through. Mm -hmm. I think um, two things about elections integrity. I mean, obviously at Oregon, we've been on the forefront of making voting as easy as possible, but we've also been on the forefront of making voting uh, cheating on voting as easy as possible. And we need to elect people who are going to make sure that they make it a part of their platform that the cheating in elections is unacceptable. Um, for example, in 2018, the biggest liberal group um, in the state called Our Oregon harvested 97 ballots and trashed them. They turned themselves in, but they have been fined by the Secretary of State just about $200 a ballot. In my mind, that should be a felony. And anybody who is seeking elected office should ask that when you take away someone's right to vote, the very essential cornerstone of our democracy, you go to jail. And, and people need to hear, because they don't have confidence in elections, people need to hear that we will make bold steps, easy steps, common sense steps to crack down on the cheating. Voting is way too easy. Cheating is is way too prevalent. We have to cut down the cheating. Yeah, and that, that's, that's happening a lot. The people are talking about the Texas delegation going to D.C. And um, I mean, that's something that, you know, their argument is, oh, it's you're making it too hard to vote, particularly for minority groups. I think the Republican message needs to be, well, historically, their vote has been marginalized and not even worth one whole vote. So yeah, we want to protect their vote. We want to make sure that their vote isn't washed out. 
because they are a minority and their vote um, is critical to the things that them and their community um, feel they need to uh, pursue, you know, electorally. So anyway, um, so speaking of, we've talked a lot about, um, uh, you know, the, the next governor's race and I, we can actually break a little bit of news here, but you're supporting a candidate that's coming out um, in the very near future. Can you uh, lay out some, some of that information? Sure. I have a good friend who's going to announce her run for governor tomorrow as a Republican. Um, this is somebody who's not going to pull any punches or back down, who is um, a rock solid but thoughtful conservative, um, someone who's not going to apologize for herself. And uh, she's 68 years old. So she's not looking to get the job. She's looking to do the job. Um, I consider her sort of uh, like a tough mama kind of type. And um, I think uh, I think she's going to have a real shot in my mind in this election cycle. Um, it's going to be so important to have somebody who is a solid conservative and not just a Democrat light. Somebody who has enough public policy knowledge or political knowledge so they don't get, you know, kicked around in debates by these career politicians that the Democrats will throw at us. Somebody that has um, real world experience in running a business who kind of knows and knows what people are experiencing out there. Um, somebody that has a little bit of media savvy that is not going to get kicked around by, by the big press. Um, and then somebody who has a little bit of of connections and resources to make sure they can hire a really solid campaign team to compete against what the Democrats throw at us. Um, and finally, just someone who's just no BS. We can't, can't afford to field, you know, a, a climber, somebody who looks desperate to just get the job and wear the pin. We need somebody who people can believe and feel actually just want to solve the problems and get the hell out. Yeah. Well, and that's interesting because um, you talked about having connections and you having worked in the business world. I, it's, it's such a funny, uh, we talk about that. This is Portland ad where they talk about dualities. I feel like companies like Nike, they love benefiting from the uh, from tax incentives and, and various deals that uh, someone like you, like your firm would push for, you know, like uh, not passing 97 uh, measure 97 but they're also sort of as a as a firm they're also donating towards more liberal candidates um so it's really interesting so uh how do you or not you specifically but how how would um how would you address Oregonians concerns that well the unions are so powerful um because the democrats embolden them so you know like how are we going to find enough uh, resources, uh, you know, how are we going to get an out like the, the Republican Governors Association or whatever to, to donate money uh, because they feel like Oregon's a lost cause? Sure. I think two things. Um, one, just, uh, just 30 seconds of history. Um, the only time truly Oregon Republicans make gains is when we have freshman Democrat presidents in a midterm. 1994, Bill Clinton's midterm, and then Obama's midterm in, uh, in 2010. 
We saw tremendous gains in the House and Senate, in the state House and Senate in Oregon. And then in 2010, we were able to uh, have a 30-30 split in the House. And I believe it was 16-14 in the Senate. Um, and we made gains those years. All other years, we just kept on losing seats and losing seats and losing seats. Also in 2010, um, Dudley uh, lost obviously by about 22,000 votes. Um, there have been two elections in the last, I don't know, 30 years where um, more people woke up in Oregon and voted for conservatives than liberals for governor. But we have been hamstrung in 2002 with Kevin Mannix and in 2010 with Chris Dudley with libertarian and constitution candidates sucking away anywhere between 50 and 75,000 votes. So that gives me a lot of hope for this election cycle because this is a once in a decade, once in every you know 15 year cycle. Um, and in those other cycles, things weren't as bad as they are right now. And so I think this could be the perfect storm um, there's also the advantage that the Democrats have not had an open gubernatorial primary in a long time. So you're going to see these candidates just scuttling to the left. If, however, our Secretary of State, Shamia Fagan, who has crossed her heart, hoped to die, that she is not going to run for governor if Kate Brown takes off for the East Coast and Shamia Fagan somehow magically becomes governor, um, there's so many votes, so much history, so much sticking our fingers in our ears and saying nothing wrong here that um, there's a lot, a lot of information that voters are gonna, um, voters are gonna have to deal with on the D side. I can't see anybody in the D field right now who Democrats would say, yes, they're gonna fix these problems. They're gonna do something new. I think voters want something new. Stephen or Lauren, you guys have? Uh, yeah, I've, I've got a few questions. Um, do you think that Miss um, Kafori, one of the uh, leaders of the city council, may run for the gubernatorial election? Funny, she lives in my neighborhood, and I see her grabbing her coffee every morning. Um, she, uh, I think Multnomah County is just an unmitigated disaster. And if she decides to run, um, I think the government employee unions, who are the biggest investors in Democrat politics will tell her to take a hike. Really? I think so. Um, so some of the questions that I have for you, um, since you do public affairs. Um, can, I, can I add a follow-up? Please. I'm curious, why, why do you think that? I think the government employee unions, um, they treat elections like a business. And if I'm an investor in Democrat politics, I would have a hard time selling Deborah Kafori's leadership skills when Multnomah County is a hot dumpster fire. I'd be happy if she was, if she got in. I mean, that's, um, that would be very helpful to any Republican running. Um, but, uh, you know, we've even had a, a news blurb in the Willamette Week that the head of the SEIU 503, the biggest government employee union in the state, a gal named Melissa Unger, um, who's a young gal. She, I think she's around 40, maybe a little younger, is thinking about running. So you get politicians or union bosses. I mean, this is just an embarrassment of riches. It's great. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that follow-up. That's, that's pretty enlightening. So um, I'm, going to, I'm going to use uh, this as an opportunity to get a little bit of public affairs training out of you. Um, 
so my question is specifically, what are some things that you saw um, in the past that the Republican Party has legitimately needed to fix in order for us to um, not only reach out to those, um, the libertarians and the constitutionalists, but also those NAVs, because I've seen a consistent problem. I've seen a consistent problem with the outreach program that the GOP has done. Um, along with that, I've also seen um, a lot of Democrats cycling over to the NAB because they don't want to be associated with anyone. So how do we, how do we do a better job reaching out to them? I want to give you a practical answer um, that has to do more with resources and timing. Um, in Oregon politics on the Republican side, no one really looks long-term. Everybody wants a quick hit. They want a quick win. They want their candidate. They want to take a picture and then they want to get out. So um, politics, the fuel of politics is money. Um, so if I'm giving you the practical answer on how a Republican candidate or a conservative at any level of government is gonna engage non-affiliated voters, I think the number one quality that they have to show people is that they are not afraid to, to really take tough stances and have courage to change things mm -hmm. and be honest with people. I think people are getting the feeling that they've been sold a bill of goods by the Democrats, that the Democrats care the most about the poor, that the Democrats are the best people to manage our schools, that the Democrats are going to make sure that that people are safe and everything's going to be equal. And we have seen none of that. Um, I think Republicans have to make their case, be honest, and not be ashamed of themselves. Part of what I feel like we've seen in so many of these failed big races is that we're trying to out-Democrat the Democrat. Mm -hmm. and, and that is weak and it is fake. And I think people can smell that. And we just can't apologize for who we are. Mm -hmm. So um, thank you for that. Uh, a, a question that I have for you, um, since you're a lobbyist. Um, former. A former former <laughs> lobbyist. It's, it's still incredibly relevant to the question. Um, we're, we're a youth-based organization that focuses on um, education, political education, uh, outreach, and um, you know, finding talented individuals. And trying that, trying to get them to apply themselves in, in the political system that we have. Um, how do we go about, like you said, um, the political engine that fuels this entire state is money. So, um, how do we go about successfully reaching out to lobbyist groups and things like, and, and other supporters, in an effective way that we're not that, that we're not spinning our wheels. What's the best way, the best approach? I would say for a group like yours, um, focusing because it's a volunteer organization, I'm guessing with no paid staff. No. Okay. <laughs> like, like most organizations, I would say. Um, you'd be surprised to know that on the Republican or conservative side, there are two and a half paid election staffers in the entire state. You've got a full-time House Republicans person, you've got a full-time person at Right to Life, and you've got a half-time person in Senate Republicans. And guess what? That's it. I know. I mean, the SEIU has 10 of those people in one organization. So when we come close in elections, it gives me a lot of hope. I would, for your organization, um, interview candidates. 
at a level that you feel comfortable. If there's a legislative candidate who is a younger Republican who you think we should pig pile all of our time, money, and energy behind getting this person elected. Show yourselves you can get a win. I think a lot of organizations, especially statewide groups, try to boil the ocean. And then they lose everything. And everyone says, well, that didn't work. I'm out of here. So I would think for a group like yours, if you could focus in on one or two key races and fundraise for those people and help them out with connections and be volunteers for them, make phone calls, um, I think that's going to give your, your organization a sense of team and a sense of purpose. And when you eventually get a win, then it will inspire people to join you and it will inspire you to, to continue what you're doing. Awesome. Are there any more questions for you guys? I just, I'm curious about what a typical day looks like for you. Oh man. Well, I have a three and a half year old, so it doesn't start very glamorous. <laughs> um, actually, let me tell you guys, um, I've started, I haven't aired the episodes, but I put out a trailer of um, a podcast called The Third House. And if you go on Instagram, um, Third House Podcast, um, I've got sort of a, a trailer video and um, to talk about uh, lobbying and lobbyists. And it's basically the truth about politics hurts, especially when you don't like who's selling it. Um, but uh, I can explain, you know, a tip, tip, typical day for um, a lobbyist, at least. Um, I, I worked mostly in my career for the dawn of the business lobby, a guy named Mark Nelson. Um, and I would be button seat at 645 in Salem. I live in Portland, 645 in Salem. We would have um, everything that we needed to do that day on the calendar sorted out and handed to us by about 7.15. And we'd cart over to the Capitol by 7.30. And we would run our meetings um, pretty much in 15-minute increments with different legislators um, attending hearings, attending coalition meetings, um, you know, working with other lobbyists on, on common issues, whether we're trying to pass something or defeat something. Um, and then sometimes some drinking off to work, client emails in between, talking up and down I-5 every day. <laughs> so uh, I know they weren't doing a lot of that with the Capitol closed this year, but it's a, it sure is a, an interesting life. Mm. All right, Jeremy. Yes, hi, Erica, and thanks for your time tonight. It, it really is a pleasure to, uh, to be with you tonight. Speaking of children, I have six, and my youngest is four. So if you hear them yelling and fighting. Um, <laughs> yeah. I can barely handle one. I am <laughs> inspired by you. <laughs> yeah, and then I'm also... Speaking of young candidates, I'm also a congressional candidate, and I'm going to be running for Oregon's. I'm running for Oregon's fifth district. <clears throat> Wonderful. So, as you can imagine, I've been speaking with, you know, uh, potential donors and voters over the phone quite a bit, all day, every day. And one of the big things that I've been keying into is there's there's a there's a sense of hopelessness with some of, of our conservative electorate. And, um, and that in turn is fueling this mass exodus of people leaving the state. Mm -hmm. So my, 
my question is, do you know if there's any efforts going on with groups or with, you know, the Republican Party in Oregon to try to counter that with messaging or with, you know, it, are, are, we, are we doing anything to try to engage those, those voters to say, hey, don't leave, we need you, stay. And I don't know if there is anything that we can do about that, but. <clears throat> Not that I'm aware of, and I've, um, I'm, I'm interested in hearing from you, Jeremy, about what you're hearing on the ground, because um, yeah. when people talk about moving in the past, it's always just been rich people who are getting taxed out in Multnomah County moving to Vancouver, yeah. but it feels like it's more families saying, I need to be able to send my kid to school, yes. so we're going to Idaho. I mean, what are you, what are you guys hearing? That's that's what I'm hearing on the ground when I talk to people. It's it's a mixture of people with businesses that are tired of being taxed, along with young families who are tired of the violence and the you know the activism in schools. And so those are the two big pushes that I'm seeing, or the motivators that I'm seeing, where people are leaving to Texas, Idaho, and um, Florida? Most Texas, mostly Texas and Idaho. That's where people are telling me that they're going to move to. Mm -hmm. so sounds good. Yeah, sounds good <laughs> to me too. And in one sense, I'm like, I can't blame you. Like, I can't blame you. But of course, I, I, do my, I do my little spiel and I try to say, no, don't leave. We need you. No, we need you here. But of course, at the same time, I... You know, you can't, you can't blame families for wanting to leave the mess here. And mm -hmm. anyways, I was just wondering if you had seen any um, like organized efforts to try to counter that message and try to, because that's going to be a problem for the electorate, I think, if, if we're not careful. You know, I think we're going to have quite a few people just leaving. So maybe there's something that I can throw in there to rebut and you guys can pass yeah. this around a little please, bit. Please do. Um, so uh, I believe it was New Hampshire. New Hampshire did a program that was called the Free State Program or the Free State uh, Program. And what it was was a bunch of libertarians. They got together and they said, let's just have a bunch of libertarians move to New Hampshire and we'll we'll try to take over this um, you know, relatively weak little state um, in order to make it as libertarian as possible. Well, we could create messaging that's similar along those same lines that if you wanna save, if you wanna save Oregon, then move here so that we can, we, can, um, we can replace the poor leadership that has failed us, so on and so forth. What, what do you think about that, Erica? I think in terms of people's time and energy, there's so little time and brain space for politics that I would encourage anybody that has a little bit of fuel in the tank for changing things to get behind a candidate. I mean, it, at the end of the day, for me, our major need is but, butts and seats, yeah. new butts and seats. Um, and, uh, and there are so many groups designed to discuss issues um, or in my mind, kind of admire the problem we need 
Republicans, many of whom, you know, are, have jobs and businesses and families who have been keeping their heads down to pick, pick their heads up and pick a person and go and get behind them. It's what the Democrats do. Um, and we almost beat them. I mean, in the average loss in the last 20 years in the governor's race, five points. Average loss for the major, major federal races, 16 points. So that this, this insurmountable issue in the governor's race is really about five points. And if we're in this prime election cycle that we get once every 10 to 15 years, let's go take it. And putting five, five points into perspective is really like two and a half, right? Because you take two and a half from one to the other, then it's even. Mm -hmm. um, wow. Um, I was curious um, to ask, uh, you were so gracious with your time. And um, I know these guys can attest, we actually do enjoy um, speaking with candidates. And we would love to interview your, um, your candidate uh, when and if she's available. That's so nice. Absolutely. You guys just email me and we'll, we'll make it happen for sure. I think okay. you'll enjoy her. Well, we're okay. looking, we're looking forward to the official uh, news release for it. So you let us know. Delightful. If you tomorrow. listen to Lars tomorrow, she'll be on. Wonderful. Wonderful. That'll be great. Breaking news. Um, so some, some other questions or well, some observations that I've made is that the Democrats have a training pipe that they run a lot of their candidates through. First, it starts out literally from the time that they've been sworn in as citizens, and they run them through programs like, um, I can't remember what it's called, but basically it's an immigrant, um, an immigrant uh, program in order to help them understand the, the process of registering to vote and then becoming a political advocate. Then from that point, they have, they have all sorts of programs that they plug their communities into in order to basically create this bench like what you're talking about and they run the they run a lot i see a logical progression of a huge swath of the populate of the of the democrat party that you know they're actually building quite a base that has experience and these are just these are things these are perspectives or um stratagem that i just don't see in the conservative party um and it's something I think that we need to um, either create or emulate. Steven, you're cutting in and out a little bit. Is that oh. just me or? I, do I can hear Okay, um, I'll do my best. Uh, but how do we go about, um, how do we go about doing things like that in a grassroots organization? I would, I, well, first of all, um, it's pretty astute of you to recognize that need because um, it is, uh, it's not just uh, a couple of campaign schools. They've got, you know, full Emerge Oregon is probably the best example of, um, you know, full-time staffed campaign school with national ties that pumps out female candidates uh, for the Democrats. And I think at their last, I looked at their website, I don't know, maybe two weeks ago and, um, most of the statewide elected females are emerge graduates. Um, I think as always the problem on the Republican or conservative side is um, funding. Um, we're business owners uh, and most of the funders and they, you know, for better or for worse, 
politics is an annoyance and a sideshow. And what most of these investors want is leave me alone. They're not thinking long-term. They're just thinking, stop the bad stuff, please. Um, most of their investment happens in the capital. Um, there are last year in 2020, 917 uh, registered lobbyists in the state. Of those, about 300 had at least one business client. So you compare that 300 people that have the ability to, as an official capacity, lobby the legislature. And then you think about the two and a half people that Republicans or conservatives have working on elections. And you just see where, where the investment is. It's in the Capitol. It's in the, please don't do this to me. Um, so I think it's going to take, um, I really think it's going to take a leader. We're going to have to show um, Republican investors that we can win a governor's race. And when we do that, we will have someone at the helm of the Republican party who can request, who can show that we can win and then lead investors and um, have them believe that if we build a bench, we can continue to win because people believe that conservative policies and values are gonna be leaps and bounds more productive for their families than what the Democrats are offering. Mm -hmm. And I'm more than happy to play the gender card and saying we need more female Republican leaders out there. So you GOP need to get, hand me a whole uh, stack of money so we can build that pipeline. So whenever you guys are ready, let's do that. I'm curious to hear about how the defeat of Measure 97 and what exactly like it took to defeat it and I guess just an overview too, because I'm not that familiar with it. So as part of my background, I worked um, not only for this lobbying firm, but we ran a lot of ballot measure campaigns on behalf of the timber and natural resource industries. Um, and a lot of tax issues, we represented tobacco companies. So we defeated um, the liberal groups. Uh, we beat a tobacco tax in Oregon in 2006. So, um, I've had a lot of experience working with ballot measure campaigns and the people that run them. So in 2016 or in 2015, when the unions filed this initiative, I was running a group called Grow Oregon. And Grow Oregon was um, a group of mostly CEOs from Portland who included most of the very active um, Salem business lobby in a group where they stood together and said, if anything big comes down the line from the government employee unions, that is absolutely gonna gore everyone's ox. We're gonna have an organization stood up to make sure we can defend ourselves. And so that was my job at Grow Oregon. So when Measure 97 came around, it was the largest tax increase in Oregon history at the time. It was a uh, $5 billion tax on Oregon sales. Now the legislature has since a few years, um, two years ago passed a smaller version, but we were able to defeat this tax on sales that um, when Curtis Robin Hold who had been Kids Opera's chief of staff um, when he was governor. And then he became the head of the Port of Portland, took me out to breakfast and I never had met the guy. And he said, you guys just need to fold and compromise. You will lose at the ballot. They do not lose at the ballot. And I said, well, thank you very much. And you'll be buying my breakfast, but we're not backing down. So um, part of, I mean, part of the recipe really was you hire the best people in America to do the work. 
You don't cheap out and hire your cousins or somebody that runs a tire store and does politics on the side. You hire people that win. You raise a ton of money and we raised 27.642 million. Unions raised 19. So it was about a $46 million shootout. And the biggest piece was making sure that we had credible people to deliver our message. Um, the knee-jerk reaction from the business community leaders in the state was, we need to tell people why we're such good people and then they won't want to tax us. Well, they're talking about themselves. What the unions do so well and the Democrats is talk about other people. We need to talk about people. We need to talk about impacts on families. And so that's what we did with Measure 97 was that we focused on the impact on people and the things that they buy every day and how it impacts small business owners that they know in their community. Um, and you would, you would think that uh, that would make a lot of sense to people. And thank God we were able to beat them by almost 20 points. Um, but uh, it's really unfortunate that much of the business community uh, didn't learn that lesson. And they've kind of gone back to talking about themselves. Um, so it's going to take a leader, in my mind, who is going to call out the cowardly politicians do the hard things that need to be done and have the courage to tell people we have to have a change or else sit in this decline for another 10 years. Mm -hmm. To speak that directly, one of the greatest um, public affairs problem that the uh, state GOP is currently going through right now is rhino hunting. Um, basically everybody, everybody who's not believing or lining up exactly how um, how others feel, they're being accused of being a rhino. This is incredibly divisive, and all it does is it whittles our, our, our support down to literally nothing. And I feel like this is almost exactly what you'd do if you were in counterintelligence. Um, so how do, we, how do we go about getting rid of the, the rhino hunting, and how do we engage uh, the party in a way that's, that's a that's a fact. I mean, you, you've laid, you've you've kind of beat this drum pretty hard and, and heavy. Is that we need to rally behind a leader that will stand up and do the hard things. And um, uh, how do we do that without attacking our own? How do we do that? And also, um, yeah, how do we do that without burning bridges? Because it's a delicate dance. It seems like. Mm -hmm. um, well, to answer the first part of your question, I don't think there's any way to stop. Um, stop folks from, especially in interest groups. The best example right now is that um, the Firearms Federation spent about $14,000 trying to recall Senator Gerard, who is, um, I, I can't second guess why or why not they, you know, they didn't walk out for guns and they did walk out for cap and trade. I don't, you know, these are people who are trying to survive <laughs> being Republicans elected in Salem. Um, I don't think you can ever stop folks from doing what they think they need to do to stand up for for people who they represent in their interest groups. But I do think that we need to have a sharper focus on shooting outside of the tent instead of inside the tent. And I think the way you do that is to get people to talk more about the, the problems that the Democrats are creating for us. Because we're not getting that from the media. We get very little of that from the media. So I feel like all of us have a responsibility to 
communicate when we see a problem, when, when there's a good article. I mean, you know, there's, there's some of these social media sites out there that I follow that really give the hard truth about the homelessness and poverty, graffiti, garbage, vandalism, drug use addiction in Portland. Um, and those, I mean, people are looking for that information because they can feel like there's problems. So I would encourage you guys, I mean, I don't know what kind of social media presence you have to, um, you know, take on the helm of um, communicating with people about what the actual problems are. Interview people, um, you know, do 15 second videos about, um, you know, the junk in your community or why a small business has to close because they can't get people to work in their restaurant. Um, you know, let people know the problems, but but make sure you have the messengers uh, that people are going to connect with. Yeah, I got a couple of things. One is, um, Erica, I'd be interested to use, you talked about um, the, uh, the Democrats sort of alienating their own voters with what's going on, A, but B, I've been saying for three years or more that the longer or the, the more radical the left gets with the AOC and the, the squad like way left, the, the, the more they're going to push moderates to the right um, because people are going to be like, whoa, I, and, and you saw it with, um, a, you know, you Rust Belt unions voting for Trump and being like, no, I, I can't get on board with this. And that, that's an economic um, decision, obviously. But my other question is, I, uh, well, that wasn't really a question, just, well, I guess, yeah, do you agree with, with sort of that statement? I do think, um, especially in this primary cycle, that um, Democrats are going to be forced to push hard to the left. Because at least in Oregon, in my mind, the game for the Democrats is who can impress the government employee unions the most. And you're not impressing them by being moderate. Mark Hass learned that pretty quick. Mark Hass spearheaded this tax increase, the tax on Oregon sales, that was the slightly smaller version of what we defeated in 2016. And he, he stood up and cheered the fact that he passed one of the largest tax increases in Oregon history. And that wasn't good enough for the unions. So we're gonna, they're gonna keep on churning out people who are um, extreme far left like Shamia Fagan. And I look forward to that conversation really with people. I mean, it is gonna be so hard for them to defend what the hell is going on here. I, um, the other thing you talked about people you follow on social media, do you know David Medina and his, uh, Oregonians for America was Oregonians for Trump? I, I do know of him just because we, um, were involved in a school board race in Sherwood where, oh, uh -huh. um, we were able to work with the local community to recruit a great conservative candidate who took out Pat Allen, the head of the Oregon health authority, who was Mr. Close your schools, uh, <laughs> And uh, we were able to unseat him from his uh, school board chairmanship. But uh, yes, I know I know David um, uh, runs runs a group out there. Okay, so my, my question was, and I had this idea. Um, we actually met with um, his group last weekend, and we were thinking about like how do we activate Republicans? And you talked about you know showing them what are not Republicans, but just people like, Hey, this is what's happening in Oregon and we need to turn this around. Well, he has 50,000 followers, um, on Instagram, uh, is the only most place I am. And, um, I thought, you know what, we, it would be great if we were able to team up with 
you know, he's done a good job of riling people up about, you know, getting angry and, and wanting to vote people out. Let's have them, let's use that, that power that David's already sort of garnered and shift them to us and say, Hey, look, now you're, now you're angry. Now you've, you know, you've, uh, uh, you know, we've, we've, <laughs> we've tased the bull and now the, or young Republicans of Oregon, this is the place where you have an outlet to actually make change. Um, so that's, that's one avenue, at least that I've sort of um, thought about and think, think we can uh, look into. Absolutely. Feed them content. Um, come up with something signature. Some Humor, I think, is a place that is missing in our political conversations. The, the left owns political satire. You think about Jon Stewart and you think about all their, you know, just all their litany of shows. If you guys did, if you guys set up like a trash tour kiosk in downtown Portland and, um, you know, took tourists off the street and said, check out all of our trash, you know, get a little bit of social media. You could go find where they pass out the free needles on Saturdays and just walk up and have someone film and just say, oh, hey, um, can I get some free needles? Is, is that okay? And then you try to go get a plastic bag or a straw in downtown Portland and they're like, no, no, thanks. You know, there, there's all, just all kinds of ridiculous things that you can do that would help fuel the conversation and make it okay for people to share. I just think that humor is such a um, untapped resource. And I think young people are uniquely positioned to, to do that. I'll just note here, for the record, if we do some things like that, we need to make sure we're safe and in numbers. <laughs> I always get my free needles. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Uh, <laughs> no, I really like those those kind of ideas. Um, I think that there are two major things that have um, gotten the most impact on our social media. Um, one is that one is anger. People love to get anger angry at Antifa. Whenever we put up a video about Antifa or homelessness, um, we typically get anywhere from three to four times the normal engagement. And the other thing is humor. Um, there are guys out there like Steven Crowder that are that are excellent Republican or conservative commentators, and there's always room for more. So um, let's find those individuals and let's um, let's let's do our best to promote them, um, especially hometown people in Oregon. So. Do we have any other questions for our guests this evening? All right, guys. Well, um, so once again, um, I would like to uh, I'd like to thank Erica Hetfield for uh, speaking with us tonight and taking all of our questions. Um, and I would like to give you uh, this opportunity to uh, give you an opportunity for final remarks. And if you could let people know uh, your Twitter, Instagram. Uh, handles and where they can find you and where is that that new podcast that you have oh sure thank you um third house podcast um i'm gonna be launching it this summer so it's not out but i'll have it on apple and spotify and all the major platforms um but uh god final thoughts seek out seek out candidates who you guys believe will actually have the guts to make the change um these cowardly politicians have completely run over us and we need someone with some backbone who's not going to back down um, at any level. County Commission, Mosquito Abatement District, Governor, 
find those people or be those people to uh, step into the arena and go go make some changes. We we have to change out the leadership or else young people like us might look at Texas or Idaho like the folks Jeremy's calling on the phone. Um, so I appreciate what y'all are doing. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time this evening and we appreciate all the knowledge that you brought forth to us today. And we are looking forward to hearing about the new candidate tomorrow. And um, anytime that the young Republicans of Oregon can uh, be at service to you guys, you just let us know, reach out. Um, and with that, thank you very much. We, uh, we appreciate you joining us uh, this evening and uh, listening to our interview with Eric and Hatfield. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Young Republicans of Oregon podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Rumble. Please consider donating by visiting our website, youngrepublicansoforegon.org. The donations will pay for political trainings for our volunteers, travel expenses so we can spread our message across the U.S., and better tech equipment.